0: Greetings, friends. It is the weekend of Sunday, May the 23rd, and we continue with our study of the book of Hebrews. The section from chapter 5, verse 11 to to chapter 6, verse 12 of Hebrews gathers around four figures or pictures, although one is more implied rather than stated. And we're going to call these four figures, these four pictures, The milk drinkers, the meat eaters, the stillborn, and the fruit growers. This first section describes milk drinkers, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 through 14. Reading from the NIV, it's a warning against falling away about this, i.e. Christ being a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you are no longer you no longer try to understand. In fact, the, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. And anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, only, or who by consent use have have trained themselves to distinguish. Good from evil. Obviously, here is a case of what we'll call arrested development. Here are people who have been professing Christians for many years, but and by this time could be teachers, but they still need someone to teach them the very ABCs, if you will, of the gospel, the Word of Christ. It is a case of stunted maturity. And that's what the author of Hebrews feels as they write to these, these people. There, there's a cloud of of threat hanging over these people due to their immaturity. And the writer makes three very important and, and I think insightful observations about this problem. First of all, there is the clear suggestion that age alone does not produce maturity. And it is amazing how often I think that it does. We, I love the thought of some inevitable growth, but time alone never brings maturity. I read of a boss that had an administrative post to fill, and he he promoted one of his employees with 10 years of experience to the job. And when the announcement was made, another employee came to him very upset, and, and he said, hey, why did you put that employee in this position? She has only had 10 years of experience, and I've had 25 years, yet you passed me over in favor of her. The boss said, I'm sorry, you're wrong. You haven't had 25 years of experience You've had one year's experience 25 times. Ouch. That's exactly the situation with these Hebrew Christians. They had been going through the same experience again and again, all the years of their Christian life, but had never grown. Instead of marching forward, they were simply marking time. It is the problem with us at times. It's like the guy who said he had analyzed his difficulty in life and had decided he was suffering from Prolonged adolescence merging into premature senility. (laughs) It is the process that produces the frequent phenomenon of Christians who come to sit and to soak and perhaps even sour. But the writer here makes very clear that age alone will never cure immaturity. The second observation that they make is that immaturity is self-identifying. It has certain clear marks which provide a simple test that anyone can take to determine whether they belong to the classification of being immature or not. The first mark is an inability to instruct others. Even though these folks have been Christians for years, they still cannot or will not help anyone else. (coughs) Excuse me. They have nothing to say to help another person who may be struggling with problems. They cannot point someone to Christ. There is no ability to help or instruct another. In fact, they themselves can't understand the very simplest doctrinal treatment. They need milk, the writer says, instead of strong meat. They do not understand the word of righteousness, i.e., the divine program of God, which results in and and right conduct because they themselves are children and won't only milk. That is the first mark of immaturity. It's an inability to instruct others. The second mark is an inability to discern good from evil. It is such people who mean right and think they are doing right, but are continually doing the wrong thing, creating problem situations and difficulties with other people. They include someone that might be doctrinally undiscerning, or in other words, folks that are blown about with every wind of doctrine who, who give themselves over to some theological fad. They go along with every movement that seems to come. It includes also people who maybe are emotionally gullible, those who move only, are only moved by emotional appeal. They're not critical in their evaluation of work or of a work. If it has this emotional content, well, then that's all that they look for. Included in this group are, are those that are frightened by what, I don't know, we might call sort of a religious boogeyman, so certain names or personalities that are used as a scarecrow because they, the very use of their name frightens people off from having any part in some certain activity. They are emotionally gullible. Then this group also includes those who are personality followers, those who make a big deal out of and then who sort of fasten themselves to one particular outstanding, sparkling personality and then read only their books, listen only to their podcast, watch only their YouTube channel, etc. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be reading books and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube channels, but I'm talking about fastening on to one individual in this respect so that you are then excluding everyone else. And those who do this, according to the scripture, are children. It's, it's immaturity. It's unable to distinguish the activity of the flesh with its exhibitionism, with egos, with from that manifestation and then of the spirit. They, these folks applaud what God condemns. They resent what God approves. And the third observation the author makes is that arrested development is a very costly thing. About this, they say... We have much to say, which is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. There's so much of the riches of the Melchizedek priesthood of Christ, which I want to tell you, he says, which would make your starved humanity burst into blooms like buds in the spring, if you could grasp it. But you would not get it because you are so dull of hearing. The immature lose so much, and they, and they, they risk even more. There's a grave danger threatening these who continue this condition this prolonged immaturity and and they describe it fully in, in the next section but but first we have a brief view of the other side of the picture the the meat eaters in hebrews 6 chapter 1 through 3 or excuse me, chapter six, verses one through three. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. It's from this section that our, sort of the title of today comes, you know, like let's, let's get on with it, so to speak. The writer is urging these people these Hebrew Christians to graduate from milk to meat, from immature diet to solid food. For, they say, it is that that is the mark of maturity. Solid food is for the mature. There's a maturity that Hebrews has already has has already been called the the rest of God. When we enter into God's rest, it's a moment by moment exercise of faith, a perfect understanding of God's principle of activity, a coming of age and entering into spiritual adulthood. This is what the writer means here. It is produced not by age. It's as we've already seen and said, not by or nor by food because milk will not make it either, but it's produced by practice. Those who have their faculties trained by practice to distinguish good from evil. It is produced by acting on what we believe, by stepping out on it, by putting it into practice. That is what brings about maturity. To reach this requires leaving behind the principles of the, the ABCs, the elementary truths, the familiar ground by which we came into that Christian faith, not laying again the foundation. Here's another figure sort of 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 arrested development. A foundation is laid, but nothing is built on it. And instead of building on the foundation, the owner tears it up and then lays it again, and and they go back and they lay it again and again. There's, There's nothing but a repetitive laying again and again and again of the same foundation. It's development that has been arrested. Major Ian Thomas, the evangelist, theologian, and the founder of Torchbearers Bible Schools, once said, You know, I have discovered an interesting thing about American Christians. They do not usually come to church to learn anything. Whatever they do not yet know for themselves, they think is heresy. What they want to hear is the same old stuff so they can say, Amen, brother. Amen. That is laying the same foundation over and over again the foundation is called the elementary doctrines of Christ or in chapter 5 the first principles of God's word the elements are listed for us and and they fall into three different interesting groups first of all it's doctrinal truths concerning concerning conversion or coming to relationship with Jesus the second one is concerning church ordinances and and then the third doctrine concerning prophetic matters well according to the writer of hebrews These this is milk. The writer does not mean when they say leave these that they're to be forgotten or denied or neglected, but they're no longer to be the chief center of attention. That's the point that they're making. The introductory matters concern repentance from the dead, from from dead works and and faith towards God. Now, now those are great themes. They're absolutely essential to, to the Christian life. But the point that the writer makes is that they are only a in the alphabet of faith the teaching about ordinances including includes baptism and laying on of hands that these these are simply symbols of a Jesus centered reality they are not the reality itself they're very blessed symbols very blessed symbols and are very meaningful but to get overly concerned over these figures these pictures these symbols to fight over the mode of baptism or the procedure of ordination well that's infantile And the last two items, resurrection and eternal judgment, have to do with themes of prophecy, eschatology. This would include the the time of the rapture, the question uh, of who the man of sin is and where the church will be during the tribulation, etc. All these are important truths. The writer does not deny that. But they, are so, but they are often so inclined to puff people up with a knowledge instead of to edify and love. It is time, the writer says, to leave those things. You know them. You have been talking about them for too long. Now get on with it. Go on. There is much more ahead. This, he says, we will do if God permits. And with those three little words, the writer introduces the naughtiest problem passage in Hebrews. Quite possibly the naughtiest problem in all of Scripture, in all of the Bible. A passage which has been a battleground of varying convictions, and scholarly opinions for ages. The writer changes their figure now and beginning in verse 4, they bring us to a picture of, of what I will borrow and call the stillborn. I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace land that drinks in the rain often falling on it that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of god but land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed it will in the end it will be burned wow thanks a lot alan what a sobering passage well, there, there is first the, the elaboration of an awful possibility. It is impossible to restore again to repentance these who experience certain spirit-given blessings if they fall away. The, the problem of the passage is how can anyone experience all of this and not be a Christian? And if they are a Christian, how can they fall away without any hope of restoration? It's, it's over these issues that a battle has waged throughout the church throughout the Christian ages. And it's important to see that all of this passage hangs on the three words, if God permits. This we will do if God permits. Here's the danger of prolonged immaturity, of remaining in one place all of our Christian life. It suggests that we may be one of those whom God will not allow to go further. We've already seen in chapter three that that God has said of certain ones, I swear in my wrath, they shall never enter my rest. Can, can we take these these expressions here as describing anything other than the Holy Spirit produced authentic life in Christ? And, and so we look at them again, those who have once been enlightened. That means to have their eyes open to, to our own desperate personal need to realize that we are lost in a world and we need a savior. That's being enlightened, and they have tasted the heavenly gift. What is the heavenly gift? It is the gift of God from heaven. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. These these are those who have known a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. They have tasted the heavenly gift, become partakers of the Holy Spirit. That's more to be influenced by the Holy Spirit. It, It is to become companions of the Holy Spirit, fellow travelers, if you will. They have tasted the goodness of the word of God. That means to enter into the joy of the promises of God and, and the powers of the age to come. In other words, they have already experienced the miracles of release, of deliverance in their own life. Yet the Senate stands, when they commit apostasy, not if, there is no if in the original Greek here, it is impossible to restore them when they commit apostasy. The immediate question is, for me here is not, well, why can't they come back? We're going to look at that in a moment. But first, but first we have to ask, I think, how can, how can they fall away after such a God honored start as this? Well, I'm going to attempt an explanation of this. And, and, and I'm going to propose an explanation that was written about by Ray Stedman. And I would like to raise a question for us to, I guess, wrestle with and which which more and more suggest, or at least to me, the correct explanation of this phenomenon of falling away. What what does this mean? Well, scripture frequently uses the analogy of human birth and growth to explain spiritual birth and growth. We have that even here. The use of milk by children is an analogy drawn from the physical life. Here is the question that I'd like to ask. Is it not possible that we frequently confuse conception with birth, culturally? If the spiritual life follows the same pattern as the physical life, we all know that physical life does not begin with birth. It begins with conception. Have we not, perhaps, mistaken conception for birth and because of that, have been very confused when certain ones who seemingly, who seemed like started off well, end up stillborn. Is there in the spiritual life, as in the natural life, this gestation period before birth when when spirit imparted life can fail and result in a stillbirth? Is there not a time when new Christians, when new believers are more like embryos, Forming little by little in the womb, fed by the faith and and vitality of others. Perhaps this is what Paul means when he writes to the Galatians. My little children, I stand in doubt of you. I am travailing in birth again until Christ be formed in you. That's Galatians 4.19. If this is the case, then the critical moment is not when the word first meets with faith. That is conception. That is when the possibility of new life arises. But the critical moment is when the individual is asked to obey the Lord Jesus at cost to themselves, contrary to our own will and desire. When, in other words, the lordship of Jesus makes demands on us and it comes into conflict with our own desire and purposes, our own plan, our own program. To put it in terms of what Jesus used in chapter five, we are called on to learn obedience at the price of suffering. This is the true moment of birth. If any man will come after me, said Jesus, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's Matthew 16, 24. So with grace and humility, Jesus may make this appeal over the course of a number of years. But if it it is ultimately refused, it results in stillbirth. The new birth occurs when we first stop from our own works and rest in Jesus Christ that is when the life of faith begins isn't this what jesus described in his parable of the sower in matthew 13 some seed he says fell on rocky ground that's verse 20 not not gravelly ground but ground where there was an underlying layer of rock these are those who perceive the word with joy endure it for a while but then when persecution tribulation comes up they immediately fall away And I think it brings us to the explanation for this hopelessness, this impossibility of return. Why is it that God will not permit them to go on understanding more truth? It is simply because as far as they are concerned, they are re-crucifying Jesus. They are repudiating the principle of the cross. They become, as Paul terms it in Philippians, enemies of the cross of Christ, Philippians 3.18. And from that point on, their lives deteriorate and they leave the profession in Christ that they once made. John tells us there are certain ones who went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be plain that they all are not of us. First John 2, 19. There is a conversion of the head that never reaches the heart. The last word on this is the illustration uh, of its reality. The account of the the, the two plots of land, remember that part, which have soaked in the rain. It's it's a simple illustration, and it parallels the parable of the sower that Jesus told. There, There were two plots of ground, side by side, both containing good seed, and the rain falls on each. One brings forth fruit, but on the other... The good seed sprouts, but because it has no root, some of it dies. and the, the thorns and the thistle thistles take it over and choke out the rest. And the rain pictures the Spirit giving blessings of verse 4 and 5. What good does more rain do on ground like that? It can only mean more thorns and thistles. This is why God will not permit someone to go on in truth until we stop our own work and depend on His. It is the principle of faith alone will receive anything from God. The whole of scripture testifies to it. So now the final figure of the four, the fruit growers, chapter six, nine through 12. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope may be finally and fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who, through faith and patience, inherit what has been promised. There was a certain evidence that convinced the writer of Hebrews that there had been true birth because they had seen unmistakable evidence of love and concern for others. It was expressed in deed of compassion, of work, not simply words, but, but ministry, help to others. You see, this is the test the Lord has said he will look for. Inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, unconsciously, unknowingly, out of a heart filled with concern for me, you've done it to me, Matthew twenty five forty. But as the writer thinks of these dear Hebrew Christians, he says, your life is so weak and struggling, and I am so anxious that you manifest an earnest, whole-souled, fervent hunger to learn and to act and to stay with it. That is the proven pattern of victory. That is what those in the past have done, those who, by faith and patience, inherit the promises. The result will be full assurance of hope. That, and that is the theme of our next section. The word of the Holy Spirit from this passage to us is wake up. Be serious. Give full attention to this. No, nothing will ever be more important. May we begin to practice what we know to put it to work. And as we do, we discover that that full assurance of hope that makes others stop and Look. This age that we live in, this poor, restless, troubled, worn out and tired age is hungering. Hungering for manifestation, for visible evidence of the sons and daughters of God. I want to close with reading from Colossians chapter 1 verses 9 through 10. For this reason, also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Amen. And God bless.